moving your career further faster. That's the mission behind Cascading Leadership. Each week, we're bringing you stories of women, immigrants, members of the global majority who have risen to the ranks of senior leadership in the world of business. Get ready to gather the insights of some of the world's best business leaders and apply those to your career. If you're interested in sales and marketing effectiveness, organizational effectiveness, talent strategy, DEI, or HR tech, tune in. We're going to share with you what they don't teach you in business school. Welcome to the show. Welcome to another great episode of Cascading Leadership. I am your friendly neighborhood talent attraction, retention, and development nerd, Dr. Jim. LB loves that intro. He is the biggest <laughs> fanboy about that intro. And with me, I have my illustrious... Lawrence, otherwise known as LB, your executive reading and research coach. How about that? Oh, I like that. That's fire. Can somebody drop a chili pepper or something on there? Because uh, the kids these days, they're big into emojis, so... We got to sell to that demographic. Hello, LB. Hey. That's enough of the banter. Let's get serious here. This is a serious show. So today, like just about every guest that we have on, I'm super pumped to have our featured guests. And this is going to be a great story and it's going to cover a lot of ground. And with us, we have our featured guest. Introduce yourself. Hey, everyone. My name is Chike and I am originally from Nigeria. I always say that first because that's a big part of my story. But I grew up, born and raised in Nigeria and moved to the U.S. for uh, my undergraduate degree and started my career in IT. And over the years, I've thankfully had a progressive career in IT, currently working at LTSC, which is the long-term stock exchange as the head of IT. And my current role there involves developing the strategy for all our enterprise systems, for all entities. So glad to talk today. and talk about leadership, get into the weed of things and just share what I've learned so far. Like I mentioned, I'm super excited to have you on. And and for the folks that are listening, Chike is pretty low key and subdued, and he's probably unlikely to brag on himself. So Lawrence and I are here to be his hype men. So <laughs> we're going to be, we're going to be pumping him up and getting into a lot of his story. And, and it's a, it's an absolutely phenomenal story. So I can't wait to uh, dive into the conversation. So Chike, glad to have you here. We got a little bit of a sense of where you are currently head of IT at a startup. And in, in a lot of respects, LTSE is a disruptor in its space. And we'll get to that in due course. But I want to wind this back. Tell us how it all began. Yeah, thank you. So you mentioned earlier, I was born in Nigeria into a middle-class family, if you will. And I grew up with parents that were extremely hardworking. And the big part about Nigeria was it's well-known to be the most populous Black nation in the world, still rich in resources, but not, hasn't really lived up to the full potential. And so I grew up always hearing the one thing we were missing to live up to that full potential as a country was leadership. And so from an early age, I had that anchor that leadership could change the country, leadership could make things better, leadership could change the world. And so growing up in Nigeria, my parents focused on education, development. From an early age, I started reading books, exposing myself to how things were done in other parts of the world, looking at examples of people and places that had done things that I was hoping to achieve 
or, or, the, or the picture I had in mind for what Nigeria could be. And so fast forward through elementary school and all that time to go to college, I knew I liked computers and I really like, I wanted to, you know, be at in the tech firm or be somewhere where like tech was picking up. And at that point, the U.S. made sense. And so I was fortunate enough to come over to the U.S. And so that's how I got here. I want to get a good understanding of how that time growing up in Nigeria, seeing the political landscape, connecting it with your educational focus and your family experience, how -hmm. that shaped you for that journey into the U.S. Because you weren't originally planning on being in IT. You had some other goal that was in mind as you were growing up. So share a little bit more about So let's slow things down here. So first things first was growing up, again, like I mentioned, I was fortunate enough to be born into a middle-class family. But one thing my parents always made sure was that we didn't live in a bubble. And so what that entailed was we're exposed to the majority of the country. And quite frankly, majority of the country lives in poverty, right below one, two dollars a day. And so growing up, seeing the potential of the country, like we knew we had crude oil, we had gold in some parts of the country, agriculturally rich, learning how those other countries had used their natural resources to get aware, but just not being able to understand the gap of how could a country so populous and so rich with natural resources be like tagged on that developed country. And so that's where I got the passion from for leadership at an early stage. And so before thinking of IT or thinking of tech and just following my interest, I had in mind that I wanted to be the president of Nigeria. Like so it was starting early and starting to go on a trail to how I could one develop my leadership, develop myself as a person, and then also be able to impact and change Nigeria. And so at the early stage, I had no plan to leave Nigeria. Jim, you pointed out, as we slow this down, I was going to stay in Nigeria, going to be very patriotic and you know, change the world. But then I started to realize like you couldn't quite bring change from within, right? Like you needed the exposure, you needed the different mindsets. You had to go see how things were done in other places and gain that experience, right? And hopefully bring that back to make an impact. So decided, okay, if I'm going to leave the country, then it's likely not going to study political science because it varied in different places, law varied in different places in context. So I went with my passion, which was technology. Now, to give context with how the education system in Nigeria was, two things. One, you could apply for a major in undergrad and get admitted and get something extremely different from what you applied for. So you applied to going for information technology and you got congratulations, you're not accepted to the School of Medicine. That was very popular back home. So you had people that had dreams, people that had their own aspirations and had realized what their strengths were. And on getting accepted to, to university, you got a completely different degree. If I was going to study technology, I was likely going to be decades behind in terms of the actual technology we were studying in school. So that's the point. Those things combined together brought me to the decision and being fortunate enough to have the opportunity to leave the country and pursue an education in technology. 
So Chike, as you were uh, telling your story, I, I want to hear a little bit more about your parents a little bit. Help us get a perspective of how they shape, help to shape your decision making, as well as any siblings or peers. What was it? You, like as you talk about the educational system, so the part two is as you talk about the educational system, where there are folks that were on your same trajectory, were you more of an outlier? I'll say a little bit more about those. My parents were one big on before education, it was like developing yourself. So what integrity looked like, what your own, how you as a person showed up. And so bound by faith, we we're Christians. And that was also a big part of family, still a big part of my life. So realizing from that, like seven others, being conscious about how you interact with the people around you respectfully. So all that and shifting gears to education in the family context and also just in the local context in Nigeria, education was a big thing. Like you got more respect if the more degrees you had. That's how it was growing up. So if you had the master's degree, if you had the PhD, you, you were more respected. And I also always tell this joke, it was you were an engineer, a doctor, or a disgrace to the family. It was one of those. And so growing up, I kind of anchored to the engineer part, like thinking I was creative. I used to break mobile devices and fix them. So just like doing things like that and also realizing that I had those skills. My siblings went the medical routes or the financial routes. So I was like an outlier in the family. And deciding to go information technology route. But I think I had enough confidence from my parents' like upbringing where it was like you could be successful as whatever you did if you just diligent, you're disciplined, and you worked hard. So you talk quite a bit about the level of level of support that you received from them. So that obviously is, is an important element. Oftentimes when we talk to our guests, they will share with us what the parental units uh, and the way that they've and the way that they've influenced our lives, and it sounds like you were fortunate enough to have a set of parents that were encouraging, and like you said, even though you were an outlier, they still gave you or helped you to see the foundation around being able to do whatever it is that you would actually achieve uh, that you sought out to achieve. What's your mantra? What is it that you live by that has carried you to this point? So I think the one thing is living for something that's bigger than myself. So from in my faith, that's God. And for different people, it varies, right? Like whatever you believe in. But I think interacting with people, either faith-based or even not faith-based, I have myself found a pattern that I think people tend to do bigger things, if you will, when they leave for something other than themselves. So that could look like a successful like female CEO that wants to change how representation is for women or it, it, we see it manifest in different flavors so for me it's like living for something bigger than myself making decisions knowing that the younger nigerian kid the younger minority black boy black girl somewhere could look up to me and so that drives me so you also when you were talking about what you originally wanted to become was the president of uh, nigeria and i'm sure you probably have that back in your hip pocket but that also speaks Bre- to breaking news. This is the announcement of Chike presidential campaign in Nigeria. Breaking news. You heard it here first. What I appreciate about that, Chike, is that that obviously that desire. So you talked about servant leadership, right? Early on, you talked about the observations that you had for your country, right? And 
Um, so that obviously speaks very strongly to your whole idea and notion of uh, community. Help me take me through what some of your vision is like when you think about community and how you can help really the acceleration of some of those things that tie into your tech background. So talk a little bit about that. So I think community is a big part of my life and the progress I've made so far. All right. Like an African adage says it takes a village to raise a child. And that's true for the most part. Like I remember growing up and when making decisions of career to pursue, like there was a lot of, oh, go talk to your cousin or talk to your auntie or uncle. And people were in general, like open and like just starting to learn from people. And I think what that also put in my mind at the time was, okay, one day I want to be able to do this, be on the other side and be able to help someone make that decision. And so moving from that point in my life to coming here for college, I think another big part, like understanding the how much community impacted me, coming to a new country. So coming here for undergrad was the first time I had left Nigeria. It was the first time I was in the US, completely different, right? I know we lightly talk about culture shock, but it was a big culture shock and a change for me. So I got here. Luckily, I had my sister who was also in the same area and had gone to the same school for undergrad. So I established that community and fast enough on, on campus, I also established a community with other international students. And what I found with the community with international students was one, it, it was hard to be away from home. That's the first thing. Most of us were about 18, 19, first time away from home, different weather, different culture, different food, everything was different. And so you think about studying for classes, you think about everything else you have to do to succeed, to keep that grade, maintain that scholarship if you had one, or just be in good standing. All of that at this level, then the complexities of changing culture, missing home, being homesick at that age, still quite early in your life. And that also was a molding experience, right? Because you realize that in order to succeed, you still have all this to deal with. And at that point, it was being homesick, being far from home. But in reality, as you go through the trajectory of life, it changes. So you, we talk about career on this podcast, but as we talk about career progress, you also think of everything that comes with life. And so I'll, I'll tie this back to points down the road in my current role. But yeah, so people being like genuinely in, able to show up how they are, right? Like the people that didn't have English as their first language and were still trying to learn English, the people that didn't understand, you know, how to live in the U.S. So all of that, I think, was impactful in my life, realizing that regardless of the circumstances, regardless of your story, like still being able to put that all together and show up in the you know, most authentic, best version of yourself every day. That's amazing you say that, because what I was thinking about, that's a great point you called out about the international student population is a lot of my friends when I was in school and, and a couple of that I grew up with were uh, also had this uh, international perspective. And something that you said that I don't know if I necessarily ever really picked up on this until you just shared it with us is that what you described and having the ability to do all of that being a good student, all those other elements that you really had to learn resilience probably before resilience was the buzzword and having that grit to just push through. And you all, as 
as a network, as a community, it sounds like help to push and pull one another through that experience. Yeah. That's pretty awesome. I, again, this is why we really appreciate having a guest and hearing about, because I know that you're going to tie this back in because you said that you would, but as you think about it, you're actually giving us the foundation for what I think Chike will become as you continue to tell your story as far as as a leader and how you continue to move into the, uh, the world of uh, tech. That navigating a transitioning communities, because if, even though you're from a different part of the world than, than I grew up, we, our original networks were our 8 million relatives yeah. that always in our business. And we could always go to and ask them about stuff. So that part is the same. The, the your comment about you're either a doctor, an engineer, or an outcast, or I'm paraphrasing. I I, I yeah. almost said, hey, Chike, I know you're Nigerian, but uh, <laughs> is there like an Indian branch to that Nigerian tree? Because that's how my culturally my family was. So there's a lot of cr- ground there. The culture shock of coming from that environment, even mundane things like dealing with winter. Right. And in, in India, where I winter was just rainy. I don't know what winter looks like in Nigeria, but it's certainly not the same way. Even in, in Atlanta, winter is different than what it would be in, in the countries that we came from. So culture yeah. shock, navigating culture shock, navigating the loss of community and creating your ad hoc community. That's all we breeze through that. But there are individual shows that we could make just about those particular topics. One of the things that, that we want to talk about is all of that experience, and you referenced this, fed into what your career trajectory and your career mission and purpose, how that mm-hmm. was defined. So you went through undergrad, you graduated in a technical role, and that in and of itself is pretty unique because there, there's not a lot of representation of Black people in technology. And certainly when you look at immigrant Black people in technology, that's even a smaller subset. And now you're getting into the world of work and and navigating the career transition or career navigation part of it. So graduated, start looking for work. How was that experience? So before, I'll take it just a slight bit to, you know, make sense right before graduation or like in undergrad, I had a job on campus, which was at the library helping other students with computers. Now, the interesting thing I always find about, about that job where my hours were 1 a.m. to 8 a.m. And so I worked overnight and still had classes, had 18 credit hours, sometimes had you know, 21 credit hours in the semester. And so it's funny when you mention resilience, I feel like that's something immigrants and people also do when we come. It's you're building resilience without even realizing to me, I was like, I need to make money to you know, stay here and working overnight, going to class, balancing that. So when it was time to start the job search, right, like I had already built the resilience to understand that keeping my full class load and then being able to start job searching. So I went to school in Millerville, Georgia, which is in the middle of nowhere, right? At about an hour, 30 minutes, 45 minutes from Atlanta. And so for the most part, jobs hunting looked like having to catch a ride because I didn't have a car or anything at the time. So having to like plan around someone else's schedule, catch a ride to Atlanta to start interviewing for roles. 
Now, something else to point out there that's still the case today is when you're a first generation, you know, American, if you will, an immigrant at that point, you you don't have permanent residency or your citizenship, right? So you have what's called an OPT, right? That gives you a chance to work. Now, most companies don't even recognize that or go down the road of trying to figure out what it is. So that first hinders the opportunities you have. So there's the, you have a smaller subset of companies that you could potentially go to work for. Then you have the cultural barriers, right? Like regardless of how, you know, I've been in the U.S. for three years. I went through undergrad in three years. When you're interviewing coming into corporate America, starting to talk, like speaking the corporate terms, you realize it's different from what you're used to. And sometimes that might look like communications that you thought went well, conversations you thought did great, but that wasn't the case, right? Because there's the body language, the spoken things that you couldn't pick up. It's all still new to you in, in context, and so that made it a little harder to find jobs. And I remember, so back to that community, we would all come together with the stories of failures of different applications we've had. Or sometimes I actually interviewed for roles and got to the point of the offer being made. And then it's, like, oh, yeah, you're not American. We actually cannot sponsor you. So we'll have to retract that offer. Right, because we don't uh, sponsor you if you're not permanent resident or U.S. citizen. So all of that, I think, also was another part of the huddle of making it to the next phase in life here. And that community was still very relevant and still very important because we it was pretty much a support group, if you will. There's going to be an entire line of questioning along the this thread. So it's. And, and and I'm not going to make any bones about it. It's already difficult in general for the average person to find work. And then when you take that down from the average person to a person of color finding work, that becomes more difficult. Then you're looking at person of color to immigrant with eligibility constraints. Right. Now you're talking about an extremely small window of opportunity. And that's before you even get into the, I don't know, there might be geographical constraints. There might be cultural constraints. There might be, depending on where you're located in the country and where you're looking for work, there might be all of those other things that pop up. How in the world did you not lose your mind looking at this really narrow window for you to, to catch on? Because the reality is, and our audience might not be aware, if you're on an OPT, depending on the version of an OPT that you're on, you have a finite amount of time to find work. And then if you haven't found work in that period of time, you're out of the country. And then if you're lucky enough to find work while you're working, you have to find a company that is willing to move you through that immigration pipeline so you can maintain your residency status. So I'd be losing my mind. How did you keep saying so I'll start off by saying I lost my mind a few times. I think it's important to say that, right? Because a lot of times we look back and tell stories like we're cool, calm, and collected and just made it through. But in reality, I lost my mind a few times, right? There were so many times where it felt like, okay, maybe I'm not welcome here. Maybe I'm trying to push it. Maybe I just need to go back to Nigeria, right? Like I have a citizenship somewhere else. I'm welcome there. I can go home. But then there's that you've come this far. So why give up now? So it's the balance between things are not working out, <laughs> losing my mind multiple times, and then 
just the urge to keep going, realizing you've come this far. Again, back to the point, you're doing this for something bigger than yourself. This is not just me. If I give up, how does that, how does my story impact the next generation or like people that looked up to me? And so again, community was a strong anchor at that point, right? Like I had my sister in the area. I had my friends who were all going through similar similar issues at the same time, similar challenges. And a, a big part of this was also, I think, my sister being vulnerable enough to also share her stories, coming here and having the same challenges. So it was all, almost like I had a shit shit to calm me down because she would say things like, I was there, my friends from the international community were there as well. We went through this, just keep going. And then there's the fake part of also just believing, right? And keep pushing. So it, it took multiple applications. I, I think it was, if I could narrow it down to a few words, it was relentlessly trying over and over again, regardless of the no's and the rejections and everything you got and just believing that one one would succeed. And that was the case. A few months after graduation, I, I landed my first role. You covered so much. And, and so we, we always have what we call a, a soapbox alert. And <laughs> one, one of the big things that you touch on, I think, is are two things, right? So the responsibility for college pre- preparedness for students is a big one because in theory, we shouldn't be caught off guard where we're in that interview process initially, right? If we have the right guidance take us through what that's supposed to look like. And of course, you're not going to be able to answer every question. Right? I was talking to a client of mine yesterday and we were talking about the interview process. And I'm like, the expectation is not to be able is to anticipate every question that you get, but you should be, you should have established the critical thinking skills, the intellectual curiosity that if you get a question that you're able to pull from different places to come up with that answer based on what your experiences have been to answer an effective question. The second one, is that when you talk about the being unrelenting and the really the push to continue to go, you also are circling back to a really key element of community and how what's sometimes helpful about when we're hit with obstacles and drawbacks and that sort of thing, that you had your sister and you had others that had similar ex- experiences that helped to normalize what it is that you were going through so that you didn't feel like an other in that experience. And so that kind of correlates for me to a lot of times when companies are talking about these different affinity groups, that's what they simply are, right? There's nothing any more or less to that. There are these shared experiences that help you to remind your group or those individuals like, hey, we, we can actually persevere. We can actually push through a lot of these things. Becomes equally as important because now as we talk about this next phase, as you go into more about telling us about your career is that puts you in a position to be the Chike that's going to tell us about the whole corporate the corporate space and, and being in tech. I think the power of community and like you mentioned, affinity groups and organizations, like it's, it's just not spoken enough. That is so powerful. One, just that reminder that you're not alone, like going through what you're going through and just the power of shared experiences and in, in going through those phases. Starting my career, and I, I shared this with Jim when we had a one-off chat the other day. At that point, right, because of all the adversity you've been through, issue was just get a job, right? Get something, right? You, you have that timeline in reality, right? With the OPT, 
to get a job before you have to leave the U.S., right, staying in, like, good legal standing, you also need to start making money. So first was get a job. And so that was the key thing, get the first role, get something in IT for me, which was my interest. And so I started from IT support and started at a small company, went through the the very rudimentary task of pulling cables, plugs, networking, all that stuff, installing, uninstalling software, always having my eye on the bigger picture, right? Like where it would lead, but being acknowledging the fact that we all have to start somewhere because again, I think another thing to share is looking at my counterparts that were not immigrants, that were Americans and mostly Caucasians because of the school I went to. You start seeing LinkedIn posts like, congratulate this person, get in this role at this dream company you looked at, right? And so you're seeing all of that, but you're starting from this little company somewhere that you have to explain what they do and where they are. And that reality of, okay, you got to start somewhere, keep pushing, keep going. And then slowly moving through. So I left that company after a while and was able to get something else. At that point, my transition was realizing that I wanted to have an alignment with the industry I was in. So I moved to a software company. And through that, again, it was more complexities, so more opportunities to learn, more interaction with more people. It was a global company. So interaction with more people helped as well to like further develop myself create more self-awareness, how I interacted with people, how I learn. And then also in, in those phases, right, I, I like to point this out because I always say this, right? again, we're centering about being minority in tech, is I remember getting like comments. When I first started growing out my facial hair in one of those jobs, someone I looked up to who was a leader, a Caucasian male, I remember we came out of the elevator one day and like, he told me, get rid of that you're looking rough like that's not professional that's not you and for for the longest time I I actually would shave my beard I'm not even talking about a trim like a clean shave just so I could fit in right so I could look professional whatever that meant and so this was earlier in the career going through those complexities of also not having people that look like me to look up to in in those different organizations like you go and look at the management team or the board of directors and no one looks like me. So then it was also planting something in my head. And I kept asking myself, if I stay here, right? Because in my parents' generation or like other generations before me, people typically stayed at roles for their lifetime, right? 20, 30 years until retirement. I kept asking myself because I knew I wanted to progress was if I stay here, what are the chances I actually progress and get in a leadership position? at this place because you look at the representation of leadership and no one looked like me so it was almost like I had nothing to look forward to (laughs) I had nothing to look up to so between that and honestly like just looking for more experience more growth I kept moving and so I moved to the next organization which was even bigger because at that point I realized I liked the global part of the business maybe it was that international community from school where I wanted to have co-workers from different parts of the world and with different cultures. So I kept searching for that. At that point in my life, that was important, like having the global context, also having to work for a known name, right? How I joked about graduating from school and all the big companies that were dream companies were off-reach, right, for different restrictions or, or different things. And so 
it was almost like a validation to myself to go work for a known global company. And so I did. And I stayed there a little, you know, over five years. And while I was there, a few themes still showed up. One, when I looked past a certain part of the organization level, there was no one that looked like me. So again, back to the question, how do I stay here knowing that there's probably a ceiling, right? There's a limit to where I can progress to. And so that then became a big part of my decision for my next move in my career. When I started looking, right, I made sure, one, that if I was going to a company, that the leadership was diverse, right? Like racial diversity, gender diversity. And I also wanted to find a company that was that had missions and principles aligned with mine because I, I had somehow found myself in financial services and the representation there is still pretty low. So it was one tech and financial services combined. So fintech, really, you go and you look at the leaders, you look at the people making moves in that niche and they didn't look like me. So fortunately, I landed in a new company where our mission is actually aligned with changing how the perception of fintech in general or the global markets look, right? Like making a conscious effort where we have above 80% of our board being females and people of color. So things like that, again, acknowledging that it's at the point in my career where I had the option to to make a change that aligned with my mission. So I, I always tell this story. If I look through the different decision points that I made in my career, the first one was just get a job, right? The second was get a job where you actually cared about what the company did and the industry. The third was like get a job where compensation was good and the company was well known to boost your resume, if you will. And then the next phase for me was get a job that actually cares about people and a company that aligns with your mission. So that's how some of the the transitions are made in terms of companies throughout my career. If you could encapsulate that and uh, write a book, you have really attacked an approach. So that strategy of how you found each phase is really a strong way for companies to consider why it's important to have that diversity, because you said it at every point. Because even when you talked about at the very beginning, you talked about people looking at me. When you talked about a company that uh, cares, you talked about people that look like me. When Mm -hmm. you talked about the compensation and you wanted to be at a big brand, you talked about people that look like me. It's just a recurring theme. And then then the job and the mission cares a lot about their people. So this whole idea of diversity, equity, and inclusion the why someone looks like me is important is because people are going to give you higher productivity benefits in that way. You're bringing these ideas, right? So you're bringing an international perspective into the equation, right? So you're bringing global. A lot of companies say they're global and they are, and they're multinational, but they are still driven by maybe the dominant ideology of a given country. So here we're in America. So we'll say from an American standpoint. And so when you think about all of these different elements and what's important to people, and we, Jim and I have had these conversations for years, right? I am tuning our own horns here because before the reemergence of DEI being a thing, we've been having these conversations, I don't know, maybe 20 years now, if I'm not you know, mistaken, and how Jim and I initially met when he became a part of my team. I was having this conversation about 
I was deliberate about why I was bringing him into the organization to be a part of my team. And so I'm so happy to hear you talk about it because this is an actual real application in terms of the idea of and value and importance of alignment. I'll put it like this, right? On on days when I got burned out wherever I was, right? Burned out from work in general, which was pretty typical. Then you, you just get that point of reflection. Why am I still here? What am I even working for? If I catch myself on the weekend or over like at night having to knock something out and then thinking of the impact, right? It's a whole organization. I'm one person, but still I'm bringing some sort of value to this company and you're essentially enabling the company to do what they believe in right at the end of the day. Then I'm questioning, what does the company actually believe in? Every day I wake up and I show up at work, what am I contributing to in the grand scheme of things? And so that alignment for me, what it does really, the importance is knowing that, again, I'm waking up for something greater than myself. So in the grand scheme of things, regardless of the task, the strategic operational deliverables I have, I want to make sure that, because in reality, we spend most of our time sadly at work right? like in the week most of the time is spent at work so if you're putting all these hours into something like just taking that step back to think what is what are you actually putting it towards so then what that looks like is when you go back and you look at the company you're working at, what are they doing in the community what impact do they have in the environment how does the leadership look and i keep saying that right because i think when companies care about you or people like you, then you get a chance to progress in the company, right? Because your voice is valued. So how I interpret that is if I'm at a company where people don't look like me in leadership, then I don't think my voice is that valued. I don't think people like me are valued because there are different ways to measure value. But in context of corporate America, promotions and progression is one of them. So that I think that's a pretty decent measure of value in, in that context. I spend time reading and spend time going through professional development while getting my MBA, while just looking for better ways to develop myself. Then it's that realization that, okay, on the days where things are bad, bad in terms of burnout, you're just not motivated. What keeps you going? And for me, I found what keeps me going is the value alignment, right? If I about to like just give in, not work on that next deliverable. But then I remember, okay, I'm plugged into something that matters. I'm plugged into something that's making the change. For me, that's the extra motivation I need. And so that's how like the value alignment and the principle alignment like became a thing for me to search for in my career. So if LB and I were of a certain generational demographic, this is the part where we would chime in and say it louder for the people in the back, but we're not, so we're, uh, we're not going to do that. But I, I, I think I want to flip this conversation on the other side of the table. So you've talked about from the career seeker and the employee perspective, the optics and how that optics is translated into long-term vision at the desk level. And I want to, I want to flip this around for the employer side, because there are so many instances that we see employers talk about, oh yeah, we care about the we care about diversity, equity, inclusion, allyship, all of that sort of stuff. And their example is maybe two people 
at the manager level that are diverse. And then you start going further up and it's all monochrome. And the reality of it is that when you look at the trends in the candidate landscape, you have almost two thirds of the candidate population that are weighing their decision to join or leave organizations based on the level of diversity that the organization has. Mm -hmm. And this sort of cynical approach to diversity where you'll throw in a couple of people on your website and you might have a couple of managers here or there, people aren't stupid. So if you're an organization that wants to continue to thrive and continue to grow, you got to look at what millennials and Generation Z care about and how they're making their employment decisions. And that's the other side of the coin in, in how it impacts a business. I talk about this and I write about this all the time where companies are talking about, we can't find people. Have you looked at how you're structuring your job postings? Have you looked at what your board looks like? Have you looked at what your leadership looks like? Have you looked at what your employee population looks like? Have you looked at what criteria you use for even starting a conversation with candidates? And those are uncomfortable conversations and a lot of people don't want to hear it. But if you're in talent acquisition and you have initiatives that you want to drive and you can't find people, I would start there before you start looking at any of the other things. Jim, I wanted to underscore that you said if the companies are choosing not to look at it, the candidates are, right? Mm-hmm. So they're looking on these different platforms where you learn about culture. They're using LinkedIn as that tool, reaching out to people. And the thing that you'll find is that whether or not these companies understand and realize, individuals are going to give their perspective mm-hmm. of that company. So they, it really is incumbent upon them to actually do that looking that you're talking about. There is a ton of stuff that we could continue the conversation with you, Chike on any of these topics, but I don't want to let this episode go without talking about some of those self-actualization efforts that you have in play. We could literally probably talk for three hours on some of this stuff, but you've navigated your journey to this point. You're not even at the halfway point and you're already thinking about some of those bigger purposes. So tell us about some of the, uh, some of the community-changing, world-changing things that you have in play and that are in the pipeline that uh, is important for the world to know about. I know that uh, you have a foundation that you're building. I know that you have a view into some charitable work that uh, that you're starting. So tell us a little bit about that. I'll start with the workplace and then transition to personal life. So first at the workplace, I, I think something that we've done, right, is one, realizing, was mentioned earlier, that people have these conversations and regardless of how you market yourself or the taglines, employees talk. And so we're building an organization that one, we have this affinity groups, right? Like people of color, minority, different groups for people to feel comfortable enough to be vulnerable and share their experiences and learn. And most importantly, to make sure that they feel welcome at the organization. And then from the filters of bringing people in, we actually spend more time to fill positions, not because we're not finding candidates that fit technically, but because we're not finding candidates that have the right cultural fit. And so that's an important thing I think I've learned recently is if you spend more time like with the upfront hiring, make each other's a cultural fit, it tends to trickle down to the organization and you you build more of a place where people care about what you care about at the core, 
where DEI is not just a buzzword, but we actually have on calendar DEI sessions where people come, be vulnerable, ask questions, share the stories, and everyone learns. Same thing with ESG, another big buzzword you hear. For the most part, people just have a one page on the websites, like just checking the box. We care about the environment or, or, the, or the impact. So making conscious efforts to build that into the fabric of the organization, right? Like I, I think is a big part. And so in, in my capacity, what I've also done is we started a summer internship program where we bring minority kids who just finished high school and give them a chance to, one, get an understanding of the fields of their interest, two, get an exposure to people, right? Because this is not spoken about as much, but when you at a distance, right, like people in big positions, like CEOs and CTOs, look, they look like they're not human. They look like it's something unattainable. But the closer you get, then there's the realization of this is a person like me. Sometimes we even have things in common. Like I could see myself being able to be in that position. And right. So with the summer interns, we make a conscious effort for them to go around the company all the way up to the CEO and have conversations. So then they get comfortable one learning how to operate in the workplace and the corporate environment and also subconsciously planting that seed in them that, Hey, the CEO, the CTO, the CIO, the CFO, that person is human. Like this is not out of reach, right? Lupita has that quote, no matter where you're from, your dreams are valid. And so we do that and we've had a successful program. Now shifting to personal life, again, being Nigerian is a big part of my story. And so I'm working on a foundation right now with my family to launch a foundation that cares for giving kids a chance to education that they typically would not have because of financial constraints. So that will look like scholarships, that will look like sponsorships, that would also look like early career advice. Because a lot of time, again, I acknowledge I had the chance to speak to people in careers that I was interested in, being able to learn from them early enough, get a clear direction of where I wanted to face and get an idea of how I could get to where I had in mind. So the foundation would focus on education giving kids a chance level playing field so that kids could try could try make the best out of their careers so that and everything else I, I do on the side again like the kids for a couple of years and I'll put this plug out there not sponsored but uh, there's a charitable organization that sponsors kids in Nicaragua right so just things like that again realizing that there are opportunities to impact other people's lives in different ways, doing things like that always fills my passion to continue. I'm coming up with this word, and all I can think of is "wow." <laughs> all I can think of is "wow." You cut, you touched so many things, and, and and thank you for sharing your information about like the foundation. And as we close out, I would love for you, if if it's already in play, to tell us where folks can learn more about the foundation. I also want to make sure that people reach out to you on LinkedIn. I think you have uh, a great story. I think that there are more of us that should be doing a lot of what you're doing. So so thank you for that. If you had uh, two or three key takeaways, what would those key takeaways be? So thank you. I think key takeaways for me is one, being your authentic self, 
right? Like from the lens of an immigrant and someone that's a minority in, living in another country, it's easy for you to want to change, to fit in, including changing your name. I have a lot of friends I came to the country with that decided to go by a different name, an English name, a name that's easier to pronounce. So remaining your authentic self, I think actually gives you the power to be confident in yourself and it also helps you stand out. Like I always think of it as a superpower. You're different, you're unique. There's only one of you and that's the power you have. And the second is, I think just empathy, right? Like empathy and vulnerability being able to create real connections with people, right? Because as you go through your career, as you go through life, you hear networking almost has a negative connotation now because people just use it to be opportunistic. But if you make conscious efforts to connect to people authentically, I think it goes a long way. And then the last would be just doing things for something bigger than yourself. It might not be fit-based, it could look different for you, I have lived it and I've seen people that have lived it when you show up every day and you're motivated for something that's more than you, for something greater than you, it tends to give you some sort of thrill, some sort of passion to keep going. All right. So those will be my key takeaways. And again, feel free to reach out to me on LinkedIn. The foundation hasn't is not live yet. I'll be glad to share when it is and share the information as well. Yep. And that will be even more important for uh, our listeners as to why they need to follow you on LinkedIn so they can get that information. <laughs> you like that plug? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Those of you that are already on the podcast, because you're listening to us right now, we appreciate you continuing to do tell your friends. We are on five continents broadcasting now. We're trying to the other couple and we will be covered. I, I know Jim said Antarctica is the other one. I don't know how we're going to get there, but we'll figure it out. Penguin um, special episode. Penguin <laughs> special episode. But the only continent that we're not on right now is uh, is Africa. So, Chike, you're going to be the, <laughs> you're going to put us on the map. Yeah, absolutely. So, we have, we are on social media platforms as well. So, obviously, again, if you're already listening to the show, you know that we're here. So, continue to uh, bookmark us and download, continue to download. Uh, you can also reach us on TikTok, Facebook, LinkedIn, and YouTube, we do most of our content download and shares on LinkedIn. But again, you can catch us on those other platforms and we look forward to you joining the Cascading Leadership Show. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of Cascading Leadership. We hope you enjoyed the story as much as we did. Make sure you subscribe to our show on your favorite podcast player. Follow us on YouTube, TikTok, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Facebook. Leave us a review. Tell a friend. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, reach out to me at jim at cascadingleadership.com. Tune in next time for another great episode that will help you move your career further faster.